4, Luke chapter 4, I'm going to read four verses, Luke chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 14 through 16 and then verse 20. And we'll pray. Lord, um, we need to learn you better. We uh, are probably quite presumptuous at times at who we think you are and the box we put you in. And I just ask, Jesus, that you, um, by your spirit, uh, break down the little borders of our boxes that, that we can understand you and live with you respectfully, that we can benefit from the things you intend for us to benefit from because we're open to, to them. And, uh, Father, we, we are so grateful for our brother, your son, and we would ask that, uh, that it would be the case for us as a congregation to know him better, to know you better. Amen. So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, where it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout, through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And I'm going to skip to verse 20 now. And he rolled up the scroll, and this is after he read. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You may be seated. Now, sometimes I feel like I, uh, I'm not elementary enough. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm so elementary I bore myself. But I'm going to try to shuffle those cards together and, uh, and be understood, hopefully, by all. But bear with it. I've got points to make, again, in this text. Those first two verses, I'll just reread them. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Okay, that's two summary, they're summary sentences, all right? Luke is like summing up what he's about to tell us. What, a, what he's about to chronicle for chapters upon chapters. He's just telling us in these two verses, this is about what you're going to see. It's like an itinerary, itinerary on a plane flight. Gives you the time, the takeoff, the destination, seat numbers, but not much else. These two sentences. The flight itself is going to last for hours, and you're going to experience things. And we're going to get to be on that flight. 
in coming weeks. But verses 14 and 15, it's just Luke's itinerary. It's, it's what, what you can expect. In, fo- in fact, most of Jesus' ministry, we find out, I don't, I don't think in these terms sometimes. My mind is kind of like fuzzy, right? But I don't think in terms that most of what Jesus did and what we read about and what he taught, it was all like taking place up in Galilee. That's in the northern part of Israel. It wasn't down about, about the movers and shakers in Jerusalem. There were moments, but it was really going, up, going on up there. People were flocking and flooding to Galilee, that region. He was born in a small town in Galilee. Well, he wasn't really born there, but that's where he was brought up. Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee. What are we going to expect in weeks to come? Well, here's the itinerary. One, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Two, a report spread throughout the surrounding country about him. Three, he taught in their synagogues. Four, he was glorified by all. Itinerary. That's my first point. Point two is what, what does in the power of the Spirit mean? Okay, so that's the first sentence. It means that just as Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit in the desert, which is what we covered last time, just as he was led by the Holy Spirit in the desert, he relied upon him in his 40-day fast, as well as relied upon the Holy Spirit to withstand the devil's temptations. So it's the Holy Spirit that Jesus has been trained to depend upon for all his earthly success. All of it. By relying on the power of the Spirit inside of him, Jesus maintains his love and obedience to the Father. You're not going to love the Father if you do not depend upon the Holy Spirit of God. You're not going to keep God's commands if you do not depend upon the Holy Spirit of God. It's by the Holy Spirit Jesus himself depended. He gained further insight into Scripture as he grew up. He healed the sick. He performed miracles, walked on water, cast out demons. It's by the Holy Spirit that any person, every person gains with God. If the Holy Spirit does not live in you and then get put, put up front and center, you'll miss out. You'll miss out. Because you, you and I, we tend toward sin. We tend toward destructive ways. We refuse them. If, if we don't make Him our priority we got problems. Paul tells us that those who set the mind on the Spirit will then walk according to God's ways. His Spirit will make a point of assisting us. And that will bring us life and peace. 
even though it may be accompanied by some terrible things, if our mind is set on the Spirit, we will find life and peace in difficult times. The alternative, with which we have all become too familiar, the alternative is to set our minds on just us. I'm doing my thing. It's about me. My life's going along just fine right now. With our flesh, our sin, our waywardness, that mind's pursuit, that mind set on self, it cannot bring life and peace. You'll, not, you'll never have that. You may have some fun times here or there. You may think you're getting somewhere, you're accomplishing some things, whatever. You're going to face unanswerable problems on your own. Jesus, from the start, even as a young boy, put his attention on the Holy Spirit. He had to. And as he grew, he matured. And his relationship to the Spirit matured. And now as Jesus returns to Galilee, it says, if he and the Holy Spirit are acting as one. Point three, Jesus returned to Galilee. Why Galilee? It's like his home state. Why do you stay in Wisconsin? I grew up here. My life experiences are in Wisconsin. These are the people I know. I know Wisconsin. Specifically, I grew up in Jackson, Wisconsin. When I was a kid, Jackson was the small town where I lived. I went to school, attended a Lutheran church. I had to mow the lawn, played throughout the neighborhoods all summer, and then back to school again. Jackson Elementary. It's where I learned tennis, baseball, and girls. It's where I skinned my knees and built snowmen and parked my bike and then later my car and more than once kissed Tracy in Jackson, who was from West Bend. For Jesus, he grew up in the small town of Nazareth. That was what he called home, where he went to church and did his chores and played with friends. No girl kissing, I'm sure. But the thing we learned from Matthew's account was that Jesus, when he withdrew from Galilee, what, sorry, when he withdrew into Galilee, okay, after the desert experience, he withdrew into Galilee because he heard John the Baptist had been arrested, that it wasn't Nazareth, his hometown, that he ended up living in. And for good reason, as we're going to find out next time. But instead of Nazareth, Jesus goes up to Galilee, and he kind of makes Capernaum his home. Capernaum. In any case, it's good to have a home and a people. One of the chapters I'm trying to uh, develop in my 
aspire to be an elder's book is, um, is on not leaving your community and staying in your community. I think it's hugely important. We all come from a home and from a people. I find it wrong-headed and a bit sickening that Hollywood cliché, when people portray this attitude of needing to escape from those they grew up with. It seemed the common line during the 80s and the 90s. All my life I wanted to get out of this town. Gag me. I look at those shows now and I just think, you little, slap that person. Not that some people haven't have a, had a difficult upbringing and they need to escape somewhat from their parents or whatever. But that attitude, I need to get out of this town. All my life I've been waiting to get out of this town. Please. It's like you're saying, I'm so much better than this. I have a a life that's much more important than yours. Mom and Dad, Uncle Sid. Now Jesus, he came to his own, right? He returned to Galilee. He loved these people. He respected the place they had in his life. They were not perfect people either. Certainly, he was better than they were. You're going to find someone that says, i got to get out of this town, I'm better than you, it will be Jesus. At least in regard to being without sin, he was better than they were. He had no malice, he was not abusive, he did not neglect. Selfishness, those those are the things that made up the people he was going to, the people he came to save. He came to Galilee, and in a moment he will be home in Nazareth, back in his local synagogue. Joseph's son. Point four. A report, it says, a report went throughout all the surrounding country. Again, this is just the itinerary, right? A report didn't go out before he said and did anything. It's because of what he will experience with them during the flight in the next many chapters that people become aware of him. People talk. News of him spreads. Come see him. He's in Nazareth. At synagogue. He's at Capernaum. Where is he now? He's in the desert or by the sea or on the mount. And he's teaching with authority and healing people. And they've been sick forever and he's healing them. He's restoring sight to blind people. He's making deaf people hear. Even evil spirits, they got no power over him. They're getting cast out right and left. Jesus is going to be gaining a lot of attention. Matthew uh, 4 says in that gospel, I'll rehash it, 
And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from, listen to this, Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. They were flooding into the region of Galilee where Jesus was ministering. Now, in a nutshell, and I don't think I repeat this, but the Decapolis was a region with ten cities that was kind of south-southeast of Galilee. On the other side of the Jordan, most of these cities were. One was uh, on the western side of the Jordan. Jerusalem and Judea. Judea is the region south of the region of Galilee. Jerusalem is in Judea. It's the capital city. It's where the temple was. And then it says, and from beyond the Jordan, which means uh, kind of east of Judah, uh, Judea and Jerusalem, across the Jordan River in that section. People were coming to Galilee. Point five, there is a series of things that have already occurred in Jesus' ministry that Luke has not mentioned so far, that are mentioned by John. Luke here has just jumped from Jesus as a boy in the temple, to John the Baptist, to Jesus' baptism, to the genealogy of Jesus, right into his being led into the desert by the Holy Spirit to fast and pray and be tempted by the devil, to his return to Galilee, in verse 14, which is where we started. What Luke has not included, that has, must have already happened, because somewhere it happened before he came to begin his Galilean ministry, was that he called Andrew and Simon to follow him, and Philip and Nathaniel. And he did his first miracle in Cana. And he visited Capernaum with his family. He attended Passover in Jerusalem where he first, the first time he turned over the tables of the money changers. This has all taken place already. So has the secret visit of Nicodemus at night, that, that Pharisee, that religious leader. And the start of his baptism of disciples, that has already started. He had that discourse with the Samaritan woman and with the Samaritan. All of these things are found in the book of John. They all preceded his Galilean ministry, which is what he's embarking on right now. And I think what I would say to that is be careful to stay in your lane when you're reading Scripture. You know... No writer writes exhaustively. Be careful to realize that there are other writers that have maybe talked on this point, spoken to a subject, spoken to a narrative. And to, to look beyond just the text that you're in at the moment. Okay? Luke selects what he intends to share. That's all. 
and he puts it on paper. Some things he skips over. That's okay. Some things he writes down. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing contradictory about it. It doesn't mean there's disagreement between the gospel writers. They've just taken like Polaroid pictures from different angles. Some photographs don't even capture some things. They're blocked out. They're hidden. The, the apostle wasn't even aiming his camera in that direction. It's okay. Some things get hidden behind other things when the picture's taken. Different vantage points. Point six. It says he taught in their synagogues. It wasn't just one synagogue in that region where they heard him. He didn't only teach in synagogues either, he, but he did teach in synagogues. All right? He taught on hills. He taught from a boat. He taught on in the open field. They started to call him rabbi, though he didn't have any rabbinical formal teaching. Like, say, the Apostle Paul, he had some formal teaching. Not, not Jesus. Jesus did not train in a particular school of the scribes or sit at the feet of an esteemed rabbi for daily lessons. Jesus' training came at the knees of his parents, came in his home education, its private devotionals, his time in synagogue, his time in synagogue every, every Sabbath day, his conversations with teachers and siblings and fellow congregants and Whatever, he had a hunger. He had a hunger. He read the scripture. In other words, when they hand him the scroll of Isaiah down in verse 17, it's not as if he unrolls it and goes, now what am I supposed to do with this? All right. He was a lifelong student. Luke Earlier, has already told us about how he carried on. Jesus, at 12 years old, carried on with the teachers in the temple. Mom and dad didn't know where he was. You remember, they had to go back and find him. There he is, standing, conversing with the teachers in the temple. People are amazed, their mouths hanging open, given his age. He was teaching them and asking questions. Listen, young people and oldsters, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit will make you into God's student. They will make you into God's student. But do you want it? Do you want to be God's student? There are plenty of ways you can spend your time each day. Plenty. We all get the same amount of hours. Everybody. You think back when you were 12. Would you say you were tuned in to what the thinkers of your church were talking about? Were you interested even a tad in what they were talking about at 12? Did you pursue them with questions? Do you do that now? As a baby Christian, I was in college, right? I believe I first became a Christian in college. 
And I remember reading the story of Solomon. Blew me away. When God asked King Solomon to choose whatever he wanted, God would give it to him. That's like the the genie in the, the bottle feeling to me. I so admired Solomon's answer. He asked for wisdom. I want wisdom. Why? So that I can discern between good and evil and properly govern your people, is what he says. I'm thinking, wow. That's what I want. That was the most impressive thing. I want to be like Solomon in that request. And it became my prayer request. Whenever we had Bible studies, little prayer circles in college, I'm talking about especially, people go around, what do you want us to pray for you about? What do you want us to pray for you about? What would you like to add in prayer? You know, we all took our turns. I would just say, pray for me to have wisdom. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, sometimes uh, God says no. But I would quickly add that you don't know how much more foolish I could be at 60 if it weren't for those prayers at 20-something. Do you want to be God's student? You can. Jesus knows how to do it. And he is ready to begin today, right now, right here. Ask him for help. Ask him to start, maybe, with your desire. It may be lacking some. I would say in the 22 years, or however many years, Tracy will correct me, that we've been here, um, a hunger for God's word, a hunger to know, to be a student, isn't always prevalent. It isn't pervasive within the congregation. There's some, most aren't here anymore, that didn't want that. They didn't want to be a student. Then, okay, if he gives you that desire, that inkling, if you have it already, great. Ask Jesus to put the right book or the right people into your hands. Little by little, you need to build. Just build. Stick to your knitting every day. Those people, those books, they'll correct you. They'll train you. It's what he uses. Teachers. Pastors. Fellow church members. So then, in order to teach in their synagogues, Jesus certainly needed to have something to say. And I assure you, he has been in training all his life. His breath of mind, okay, talk about wisdom. His breath of mind is is a deep ocean in which he has figured out the movements of all the currents. This is his time. 
6.7. He was glorified by all, it says. We're going to see how Jesus picks up steam. He's picking up steam. Glorified by all doesn't mean that everyone is ecstatically happy with Jesus, as we're going to see next time. But for the most part, huge crowds, eager crowds, happy crowds, needy crowds, people wanting to be near him and learn from him and get healed by him or even just touch his garment. And they were coming, as we learned from Matthew, from the Decapolis and Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem beyond the Jordan. So he's getting recognition far beyond where he's doing his things. News spread like a flame in a dry field. Indeed, much of Luke has Jesus doing his kingdom work right there in the region of Galilee. He was not a world traveler, though his message was for the whole world. Which brings me to verses 16 and 20 there. I'm putting them together, blocking out the middle, just because that'll be next time. Verse 16 says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Hometown, right? And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And then a little later in Verse 20, it says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Again, came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. This is not the the larger region of Galilee in general. Now he's specifically in his hometown. This is Jesus' Jackson. They believe that Nazareth likely had less than a 1,000 people. There was probably only one synagogue there. And this was his home. Where he went to church and did his chores and played with his friends and became a carpenter of all things. People knew him here. Isn't this Joseph's son? We're going to see. They were familiar with his ways, and he knew them. His friends had fathers and mothers, aunts and uncles and cousins. They worked together. They traded with one another. They shared a common faith. Faith some took seriously, more seriously than others. Jesus was a a person who took his faith very seriously. And probably Jesus was considered a good and godly boy growing up. One whose faith really had something, had substance. Point nine, when Sabbath arrived, there there would be no question. Jesus would go to synagogue. It says it was his custom, his manner. He would go to synagogue. I can't fathom Jesus going, well, tomorrow's Sabbath. 
or tonight's Sabbath into tomorrow night. And um, I don't know, fish are biting. Fish are really biting. I think uh, we're going to skip. I mean, that's sacrilege for me to even say that, right? I think we're going to skip this week. Oh, he might have gone to a synagogue closer to the Sea of Galilee or in a better fishing spot. I'm not saying any of that. But this was his custom. This is his manner. This is what he did. This is an obedience to commandments. He knew synagogue worship to be a hub, okay, a portal for the worship of God. That is what Lord's Day worship offers us. Gracious access to God within the assembly, and you get it once a week. And listen, you know he worshipped God in the early mornings, in places of solitude. There's great advantage to drawing near to God all by yourself, with your family members. However, on the Sabbath day, verse 16, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. If you were going to hang out with Jesus, that's what we want to do, hang out with Jesus, you need to attend worship. You would have had to. To find him during synagogue worship? You go, well, where's Jesus? And we'll wonder what he's doing right now. I'll tell you what he's doing right now. It was his custom to go to synagogue. That's where you're going to find him. And Jesus, much to the chagrin of what some preachers teach, Jesus is our great liberator, but he didn't liberate us from worship. He liberated us to worship. He didn't liberate us from keeping the commandments. He made it possible for us to be able to keep the commandments. And so this crazy teaching that's out there that says, well, now that Jesus has come, We have entered into the full Sabbath by his work. We no longer need to keep one day as a Sabbath, as the Lord's day. That's craziness. And it's a ticket to problems. This is where he learned. One place for sure. He did not only ask questions in Jerusalem's temple, okay? Temple was what? Three times a year. That's not where the Hebrew people went to worship God. Oh, we have to make a trek to Jerusalem every Sabbath? No. They had local synagogues, local assemblies, churches. That's what the church is based upon. It's not based upon the temple model. Churches are based upon the continuation of the synagogue model. Thank the Lord for that.
you can bet that his education and eager mind, it began at home and in the synagogue in Nazareth. And his own people, they knew of his spiritual insight. He really has a lot on the ball. Unless, of course, some never noticed because they were too dull and distracted by their own flesh. You almost have to think that Jesus, okay, his dad had passed away at some point, Joseph had, and it was mom and his siblings. He was the eldest, firstborn, of course. Um, you almost have to think that Jesus and his mother Mary, perhaps his siblings, were quite intentionally lovers of God. They were intentional about things. Even if the siblings weren't, they were going to be coming along, and they were going to be participating. Mom and older brother would make sure of that. But their paramount, their faith was paramount to life. And at some point, it became evident that the eldest, eldest sibling, he, he, was, he knew his stuff. You could go to him for answers and guidance. Point 10. Jesus contributed as a teacher when he attended Sabbath worship. It says he stood up to read. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What does it mean he stood up to read? This is what the, the reader and the congregation did whenever the law or the prophets were read in synagogue. They'd stand up. We stand up as we read uh, both God's will for our lives. We're standing already, which is the scripture text. And then um, the reading of the text that we're going to preach through, we, congregation stands for that here. But that's what they did. They'd stand up when the law and the prophets were read in synagogue. The reader would as well as the congregants. And the law and the prophets were both read every Sabbath. But also, not only were they read every Sabbath in the synagogue, but there were two mornings of the, of the week, Mondays and Thursdays, that they'd read from the law and the prophets too. Because it was reasoned by the rabbis throughout history that, um, that the, the word of God should go out and be heard and there should never be more than a three-day span before you hear it again. So Jesus stood up to read. Why him? I think this too is common for a man with his character and intentionality toward godly worship. You had to be allowed to read. If you were in synagogue, not anybody would just pop up and say, I'm reading next. I got the next one. Now, they had to be allowed to read by someone in church authority, synagogue authority. It's safe to assume that Jesus had been permitted in the past because of his growing up godly, that he had been permitted in the past to read in synagogue. Perhaps often, perhaps every Sabbath. John Gill, okay, a Bible commentator, shares these points. I, I find them interesting. 
Gill writes, Wherefore they say the law must be read standing, and it is even forbidden to lean on anything. Christ conformed to these rules. He, he went into the synagogue to read on the Sabbath and stood up when he read and waited for order and a book to be given him to read. It may be asked how he came to be admitted to read publicly in the synagogue when he was not of the tribe of Levi, nor was he brought up in the schools and academies of the Jews and was known to be a mechanic, carpenter, it may be observed that common Israelites, common Israelites, as well as priests and Levites, were allowed to read the scriptures publicly. Every Sabbath day, seven persons read. A priest, a Levite, and five Israelites. The order was this. The priest read first, and after him the Levite, and after him an Israelite. It is said to be known, custom to this day, that even an unlearned priest read before the greatest wise man in Israel, and he that was greater than his companion in, in wisdom read first. Of the five, the greatest, the one that was greatest in wisdom would read first. I found that interesting. Well, after Jesus finished reading, it says in Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. He sat down, it doesn't mean, okay, he went back to his seat in the congregation. It means that he sat down at the head of the people. He sat in the rabbi's seat, the teacher's seat. Because Jesus was about to explain what he just read. John Ellicott, another commentator, says the chair near the place from which the lesson was read was the pulpit of the rabbi. And to sit down in that chair was an assumption by our Lord. John Gill adds this, the master sits at the head or in the chief place and the disciples before him in a circuit like a crown so that they all see the master and hear his words. So the words read while standing in the synagogue were straight from God. They were God's word. The things the rabbi taught from his chair, they were his best understanding of God's word. What it meant in his way of thinking. Never, congregants, never make the mistake that the things taught from this pulpit are in perfect synchronization with the scripture read from this pulpit. There are errors that come from the lips of the preacher and teacher. That is why the warning is severe that someone should not be quick to want to teach, for he will be held responsible and judged more severely. James 3, 1. The standing and sitting, I think, is a good reminder I think that would be cool. Our tradition, which could be changed, 
is, is for all of us to stand while the Scripture is read, and, and then the preacher continues standing while he attempts to explain what was read. And it's during his explanation here, at least, it's during his explanation that the congregants sit. Maybe that's our way of uh, taking the cue. <laughs> Once the Scripture's read, you sit, and now you go, okay, let's see if he's being biblical. <laughs> not, a, not a bad idea. But where the biblical writer's words stop, where the text is done being read, and where the teacher begins, perfection stops. And the waters can get muddier because of all his potential errors. Some Christian traditions, they separate the pulpits, right? The scriptures are read from a particular pulpit, and that's separated from the sermon pulpit. So the congregants get the idea, okay, this is God's word. This is Pastor Jeffrey. (laughs) That's helpful too, I think. In the synagogue of Nazareth, Jesus finished the reading and he sat down to teach. So the errors might begin now when he sits down. The beauty of what Jesus is about to say means, I think, he could have remained standing because the words will be perfect. His words are God's words. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that we would want to be students, that our life would be built around you and your word, that we'd set our minds on you, Holy Spirit, and apply ourselves to the reading of your word, to the better understanding of it, with the help of church worship and preaching, and also the help of good theological books and conversations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.